This is the Supreme Court of the United States, the final arbiter of all our laws. In the past few decades, the court has become one of our more controversial institutions, accused of not merely interpreting the law, but of rewriting it. The 15th Chief Justice of the United States is Warren Earl Berger, 62 years old, of Minnesota. President Nixon appointed him in 1969 to lead the court into quieter waters. He's considered a strict constructionist, a man who does not believe the court should create new law. In addition, in his second but equally important role as the chief officer of the entire federal judiciary, Mr. Berger is expected to work hard at reforms and the streamlining of procedures. It's still too early, of course, to hazard a guess as to whether Warren Berger is going to turn out to be one of the great chief justices of the United States, or whether he'll be one of that group of men whose portraits also hang on the wall here in the conference room, but whose names are largely forgotten. Any list of the great chief justices, of course, would have to start with the name of John Marshall of Virginia. He held the post an incredible 34 years. And during that time, he firmly established the principle that the Supreme Court should review all the actions of Congress and the President to make sure they conform to the Constitution. He built the present powers of the court. Roger Tawney, 28 years as Chief Justice, the author of the decision returning Dred Scott to slavery. Salmon P. Chase, who presided at the treason trial of Jefferson Davis and the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson. Charles Evans Hughes, whose court struck down the New Deal's legislation. William Taft, a great administrator and reformer of court procedures, a subject in which Chief Justice Berger is also vitally interested. But who today remembers the name of Chief Justice Morrison Waite, although he wrote more than 1,000 opinions? Or Chief Justice John Rutledge, who wrote only two before the Senate rejected his nomination? Earl Warren served 16 years and is undoubtedly among the most controversial and important of the Chief Justices. His critics said that under Earl Warren's leadership, the men who sat here wrote new laws when they didn't like the old ones. Mr. Warren said that the court found itself in stormy waters only because the issues brought here during his tenure were the stormy issues of the day, and that inside this chamber there is no ducking responsibility for making hard decisions. But no matter how long they sat here, or what they did here, none of his predecessors ever did what Chief Justice Warren Burger is attempting today, delivering to the American people a state of the judiciary message and report. Chief Justice Burger is elected to deliver this first message before the American Bar Association in St. Louis. Conceivably, someday, he might make such reports annually before a joint session of Congress in the same fashion as the head of the executive branch. In a moment, we'll take you to Powell Symphony Hall in St. Louis for this first State of the Judiciary message delivered this morning by the Chief Justice of the United States, Warren E. Berger. This is a CBS News special report. State of the Judiciary with CBS News correspondent George Herman. This broadcast is sponsored by... Western Electric, the people who make Bell Telephones, and the communications equipment of the future. These are the people who make the things your phone calls are made of. The people of Western Electric, over 200,000 of us. job in the Bell system is to make telephones, intricate communications equipment, 
and millions and millions of things that are needed to connect one phone with another in the world's largest telephone network, the Bell Telephone Network. The people of Western Electric. We make Bell Telephones and other things to help you reach just about any place in the country. St. Louis, before the annual meeting of the American Bar Association, the Chief Justice of the United States, Warren E. Berger, is about to deliver the first State of the Judiciary Address. CBS News will present an analysis by a panel of legal experts following the Chief Justice's speech. Mr. Berger is being introduced by Bernard G. Siegel, the Bar Association's president. This will once again then today be an historic occasion as we hear the first state of the judiciary message in the history of our country. Ladies and gentlemen, the Chief Justice of the United States. Mr. President Siegel, distinguished guests, and members and friends of the American Bar Association. When President Siegel and the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association invited me to discuss the problems of the federal courts with you as legal leaders of the legal profession, my mind turned at once to one of the great statements of the problems of the administration of justice. That, of course, was Dean Roscoe Pound's famous speech to this association at your meeting exactly 64 years ago this summer. Pound, you will remember, was then the very young dean of Nebraska's law school and later to become the great dean of Harvard and one of the outstanding figures in American law. He said then that the work of the courts in the 20th century could not be carried on with the methods, the machinery, and the means of the 19th century. Judges and lawyers did not heed Pound's warning. And today, in the final third of this century, we are still trying to operate the courts with fundamentally the same basic methods, the same procedures, and the same machinery that he said were not good enough in 1906. In the supermarket age, we are, with few exceptions, operating the courts with cracker barrel corner grocer methods and equipment, vintage 1900. My responsibility today is to say to you frankly, and even bluntly, what I think is wrong with our system and machinery, and what can and must be done to correct it in order to make it work. The changes and improvements we need are long overdue. They will call for a very great effort, and they may cost money. But if there are to be higher costs, they will still be only a small fraction, for example, of the $200 million cost of one C-5A airplane, since the entire cost of the federal judicial system for one year, for the next year, is less than one of those planes. It is $128 million. Military aircraft are, of course, important, essential in this uncertain world. 
but so is adequate support for the judicial branch. More money and more judges alone is not the primary solution to the problems of the courts. Some of what is wrong is due to the failure to apply the techniques of modern business to the management of the purely mechanical operation of the courts, of modern record keeping and systems planning for handling the movement of cases. Some is also due to antiquated and rigid procedures which not only permit to delay but encourage it. I hope I can provoke debate, even controversy over these things, to explore and test what I have to say. With increasing urgency, my distinguished predecessors from Chief Justices Taft and Hughes to Chief Justice Earl Warren have pressed these matters vigorously. But today, today, I place this burden squarely on you, the leaders of the legal profession, and on all judges. If the 144,000 lawyers in the 1,700 state and local bar associations will act promptly, you can prevent a breakdown in the work of the federal courts. In the federal courts today, the problem areas are essentially in the large cities. Here we find in the judicial system no more than a reflection of the complexities of modern life. The problems exist where the action is. How did this present situation come about in the face of numerous additional judgeships provided by Congress over the last 30 years? When we look back, we can see three key factors that account for it. First, the legal profession did not act on Dean Pound's warnings when he said that they had to bring, that we had to bring the methods up to date. Second, all the problems he warned about have become far more acute by the increase in population of this country from 76 million in 1900 to 205 million at the present. Third, many new kinds of cases have been added because of laws passed by Congress, decisions of courts, and the needs of a changing society. In this century, wars and social upheaval and the inventiveness of man have complicated our individual lives and society. The automobile, for example, did more than change the courting habits of American youth. It paved the continent with concrete and blacktop. It created the most mobile society on earth with all the dislocations and frictions that go with it. And it led people from rural areas to crowd the unprepared cities. The same automobile also maimed and killed more of our people than all of the wars in that time and brought into the courts thousands of cases that did not even exist in 1900. All this ferment of wars, of increased movement of people, congestion in the cities contributed to an enormous increase in crime. And criminal cases, once a stable figure in the federal courts, increased. And to make it worse, it now takes twice as long as it did 10 years ago to move a criminal case from the day of the indictment to the day of the sentence. And after that, there are the appeals. To illustrate these changes, consider just a few figures with me. From 1940 to 1970, personal injury cases multiplied five times. Petitions from state prisoners seeking federal habeas corpus release increased from 89, 89, to over 12,000 last year, 1,400 times as many. And during this period, Congress increased the number of judges by 70%, while the total of all cases filed in the federal courts nearly doubled. But the increase in the volume of cases is not by any means the whole story. 
Experienced trial judges note that the actual trial of the case now takes twice as long as it did 10 years ago because of the closer scrutiny we now demand of confessions, identification witnesses, and evidence. We must do that before we deprive any person of his freedom. These changes represent a deliberate commitment to values which are higher than pure efficiency when we're dealing with human liberty. The impact of all these new factors, and they are many and complex, has been felt in both state and federal courts. A few illustrations as to the federal courts may help. The Criminal Justice Act of 1964 guaranteed a lawyer for criminal defendants, at public expense, of course, for the indigent, and along with it, appeals at public expense. The Bail Reform Act of 1966 authorized liberal release before trial without the conventional bail bond. Each of these acts was an improvement on the existing system. But we can now see what was produced by the interaction of these two laws in a period when crime was increasing. The impact was most notable in Washington, D.C., for example, where federal courts handle all the felony cases. With a lawyer provided to secure release without bail, most persons indicted except in capital cases are released pending trial. We should not be surprised that a defendant out on bail exerts a heavy pressure on his lawyer to postpone the trial as long as possible so as to remain free. Now, if trials were held promptly and swiftly completed, and if appeals were heard without delay, this would be less of a problem and perhaps even these heated debates over preventive detention would disappear. But these two acts of Congress, good acts, came in a period when other forces, including decisions of the courts, were making trials longer, appeals more frequent, and retrials commonplace. Being human, the defendant plays out the line which society has cast him. And lawyers are competitive creatures, and the American system encourages contention and often rewards delay. No lawyer wants to be called on to defend a charge that he was incompetent for having failed to exploit all the procedural techniques which we have deliberately made available. Yet the most experienced defense lawyers know that the defendant's best interests may be served in most cases by a guilty plea without a trial. A new category of cases was added when it was decided that the claims of state prisoners testing the validity of a state conviction were to be judged by federal constitutional standards. As a result of that decision, federal district courts were obliged to review, as I have already said, 12,000 petitions last year as compared with 89 in 1940. If the states will develop adequate procedures for their own state prisoners, this problem will largely disappear, and we will eliminate a major source of friction and irritation between the state and the federal systems. But there is another factor. It is elementary in the system of courts that the number of judges prosecutors, bailiffs, clerks, court reporters, and courtrooms has been based on the premise that approximately 90% of all the defendants will plead guilty, leaving only 10% more or less to be tried. But that premise may no longer be a valid, a reliable yardstick of our needs. Notice that what may seem even a small percentage change in the rate of guilty pleas can have a tremendous impact on the courts. A reduction from 90% to 80% in guilty pleas, for example, requires the assignment of twice as many judges. A reduction to 70 trebles that demand. This was graphically illustrated in Washington, D.C., when the guilty plea rate dropped to 65%. 
As recently as 1950, three or four judges were able to handle all the criminal cases in district courts. By 1968, 12 judges out of a total of 15 were assigned to the criminal calendar, and they could barely keep up. Fortunately, few other federal courts had such a drastic change, but to have this occur in the national capital, which ought to be a model for the nation and a showplace for the world, was little short of a disaster. There is a widespread public complaint that the present system of criminal justice does not deter criminal conduct. That is correct. It is correct so far as the crimes which trouble most Americans today. Whatever deterrent effect may have existed in the past has now all but vanished as to those crimes. If ever the law is to have a genuine deterrent effect on criminal conduct, we must make some changes. The simple and obvious remedy is to give the courts the manpower and the tools, including prosecutors and defense counsel, to try criminal cases within 60 days after indictment and then let us see what happens. I predict it would sharply reduce the rate of crime. Efficiency alone, of course, must never be the controlling test of a system of criminal justice. But the work of the courts can be efficient without jeopardizing basic safeguards. Both the accused and the public are entitled to a prompt trial. The addition of 61 new federal judgeships, district judgeships, by the Congress within recent weeks, bringing the total to 401 for the whole country, is the result of efforts which began five years ago. Since it will take time to fill these important positions, and new judges do not reach their peak of efficiency at once, the full impact of these new men will not be felt for a long time. We see, therefore, that the additional judges needed in 1965 were not authorized until 1970. We cannot solve our problems in the courts by meeting needs five or more years after they arise. The time to plan for 1975 and 1980 needs is now. And I hope this can be accomplished not simply by adding more judges, but by the more efficient use of judicial manpower and greater productivity. Improved methods, improved machinery, improved management, and trained administrative personnel are the keys to greater productivity of judges. Meanwhile, not a week passes without speeches in Congress and elsewhere and editorials demanding new laws, new laws to control pollution, new laws to change the environment, new laws allowing class actions by consumers to protect the public. The difficulty lies in our tendency to meet new and legitimate demands with new laws, but without adequate consideration for the consequences on the courts. This is dramatically illustrated in the current budget of the Office of Economic Opportunity. Congress has granted that program $58 million for legal services alone. That $58 million is a sound commitment to an underprotected segment of our society that Mr. Siegel just referred to. These are people whose rights have suffered because they could not afford lawyers. Few things rankle in the human breast like a sense of injustice. Whether the problem is large or small in the abstract, it is very large to the person afflicted. We should applaud Congress for that step. But stop for a moment and remember that $58 million is almost half of what is allowed for the entire operation of all the federal courts in this country. What all this adds up to is that for at least 50 years now, the federal court system has experienced the combination of steadily increasing burdens while suffering from deferred maintenance of the total judicial machinery. 
and added to that, much of that machinery and much of our method is obsolete. The foresight of Congress in creating the Federal Judicial Center for Research and Study of Court Problems two years ago is one of the few bright spots in the past 30 years, and along with it, the creation of the Institute of Court Management Mr. Siegel spoke of. We must make a choice of priorities. When we want to dance, we must provide the musicians, and the public may well be called upon to pay something more for the federal judicial system to increase its productivity. Neither the costs nor the number of judges can be held down if the caseload is constantly expanded. To prepare for this report to you today, I asked every federal judge in the United States for suggestions and comments. The hundreds of replies reflected the note of frustration and even anguish at the daily management and administrative burdens that drain time and energy from their primary task of judging and deciding cases. That was the common denominator, the common complaint from them. Federal judges today are in much the same position of members of Congress a generation ago before their Reorganization Act, which gave them adequate staffs for themselves and for their committees. The business of litigation is highly complex. To assemble all the necessary individuals is not as simple as it appears on the TV shows. It actually involves the very difficult task of bringing together a judge, 25 or more prospective jurors, the lawyers, the witnesses, court reporters, bailiffs, and others, at the same time and at the same place without lost motion. The absence or the tardiness of a single person will delay the entire process and waste untold time. Countless citizens serving as jurors have been irritated because they spend most of their time watching television in the jurors' lounge, if they have a television set there, rather than hearing cases in the courtroom. The management of busy courts calls for careful planning, definite systems, organization, with supervision by trained administrator managers. In the past 10 years, this country has trained 58 astronauts capable of flying in outer space, but we do not have that many court administrators available in this country to serve the courts. The federal courts need, and they need it immediately, a court executive or administrator for each of the 11 circuits and for every busy trial court. We need them to serve as the traffic managers in a sense as hospitals have used administrators for the past 40 years to relieve doctors and nurses of management duties. We are almost a half century behind the medical profession. In our basic principles, it is indeed important that we maintain our links with the past and build carefully on those foundations because they are the result of thousands of years of human experience in the evolution of the law. There is great value in stability, predictability, and continuity, but the procedures and the methods of the law ought to respond more swiftly. Hospitals, doctors, farmers, and businessmen have changed their methods, and we must change ours and bring them up to date. The widespread growth of judicial seminars and institutes and study centers have contributed much to the improvement in recent years, and we owe a very great debt to my colleague, Justice Tom Clark, who has worked tirelessly on these improvements both for the federal and the state courts, and I applaud him for it. The, 
the price, the price we are paying and will pay is partly because judges have been too timid and the bar has been too apathetic to make clear to the public and the Congress the needs of the courts. I intend to be neither timid nor apathetic about this. Let me, let me list some of the major steps for the future, and they ought to begin at once. The friction in relations between the state and the federal courts presents a serious problem. In both the review of the state prisoner petitions and other cases, I strongly urge that each state create a state-federal judicial council to maintain continuing communication on all joint problems. In some states, this has already begun. Next, the state and federal judges should continue their cooperation with the American Bar Association to establish standards of conduct for lawyers and judges that will uphold public confidence in the integrity of the system we serve. Next, we should urgently consider, and this is extremely important, a recommendation to Congress to create a Judiciary Council of perhaps six members, one-third appointed by each of the three branches of government, to act as a coordinating body to report to the Congress, the President, and the Judicial Conference on a broad range of matters affecting the courts. Next, over the years, various statutes and decisions of the courts have altered many aspects of criminal procedure. Since Congress is right at this moment considering an entirely new federal criminal code, we should very soon undertake a comprehensive re-examination of the whole criminal procedure so that we can establish adequate guidelines which will reflect adjustment both to the new code, to judicial holdings, and to take into account new procedural developments made in the states. Next, the system of justice must be viewed as a process embracing every phase from crime prevention at the beginning through arrest, trial, and the correctional system. We can no longer limit our responsibility to providing defense services for the judicial process alone and yet continue to be miserly with the needs of correctional institutions, probation, and parole systems. Next, the whole process of appeals must be re-examined. It is cumbersome. It is costly. It takes too long. Finality of decision at some point is essential to any rational and workable system of justice. Next. We made a wise choice in this country in guaranteeing a lawyer in every serious criminal case, but we must take another step. We must now make certain that these lawyers are adequately trained and that the representation of defendants is on a high professional basis. It is professional advocacy, we promise. Professional advocacy, nothing more. This association has provided lawyers with comprehensive and authoritative standards, and it is now up to the courts and the bar to make sure those standards are followed. I have necessarily left out in this brief time many important subjects and left others undeveloped. But I hope I have imparted to you a sense of urgency on the problems and the needs of the courts. I hope also that I have made my point that this is primarily better management, better methods, and better trained personnel, not simply more judges. A sense of confidence in the courts is absolutely imperative to maintain the fabric of ordered liberty for a free people. And three things could destroy that confidence. One, 
that people come to believe that inefficiency and delay will drain even a just judgment of its value. One, that people have, who have long been exploited come to believe that the courts cannot vindicate their legal rights from fraud and overreaching in the smaller daily transactions of life. One, that people come to believe that the law in the larger sense cannot fulfill its primary function to protect them and their families in their homes, at their work, and on the streets. I have great confidence in our basic legal system and its foundations, in the dedicated people in the judicial system, and in the lawyers of America. I believe they all accept the idea that continuity with change is the genius of the American system, and that both continuity and change are essential to fulfill the promise of equal justice under law. If we want to maintain these crucial values, and I am sure we do, we must make some changes in our methods and in our machinery and in our procedures. And I ask your help, the help of every lawyer in America, to see that this is done. Thank you. The Chief Justice of the United States, Warren E. Berger, has just delivered the first State of the Judiciary Address before the annual meeting of the American Bar Association at Powell Symphony Hall in St. Louis. In a moment, an analysis of the Chief Justice's speech. If you watch carefully and listen, the body will tell you how much effort it takes to perform a job. This is part of a new science at Western Electric called biomechanics, the science of man and machines. The people of Western Electric, in cooperation with Texas Tech and the University of Michigan, have pioneered studies in biomechanics. We believe it's better to change jobs to fit people than people to fit jobs. So, we're redesigning chairs, workbenches, and assembly lines we use to make equipment for the Bell Telephone Network. We've even listened to an arm talk and tell us how a basic hand tool can be changed to make people more comfortable at their work. Western Electric. We make Bell Telephones with people and machines that are made for each other. From CBS News in Washington, here is correspondent George Herman. Here with us in the studio to discuss the speech by Chief Justice Berger is a panel of distinguished jurists and experts in the law. Starting on my left, seated here next to me, is Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina, a noted advocate of strict construction of the Constitution, a frequent critic of Supreme Court actions. Senator Irvin is one of those Harvard Law School graduates who went on to serve on the Supreme Court of his state. Senator Irvin has also served in both houses of the Congress. He has, in other words, made law, practiced law, and judged law. Next to him is Ramsey Clark, former Attorney General of the United States and the son of a former Attorney General, Tom Clark, later a Justice of the Supreme Court, whose work received special mention by Chief Justice Berger in his speech. Ramsey Clark was a remarkable administrator in his own right. As Assistant Attorney General, he regularly returned about 9% of his budget and finally asked Congress for a budget cut. Not, presumably, as a result of this, he is now in private practice. Finally, Ernest Friesen, Executive Director of the Institute for Court Management at the University of Denver, the organization so warmly praised by Chief Justice Berger in his speech. 
Mr. Friesen is an expert on court management and has been a lawyer, a teacher of law, and an assistant attorney general for administration under Ramsey Clark, although Mr. Clark is a Democrat and Mr. Friesen is more or less, I gather, a Republican. Gentlemen, I'd like to ask you, always when we come up with something like this, which uh, I suppose in this case would be called not instant analysis, but summary judgment, the newsmen and the media people are accused of making the headlines. So let me this time ask the lawyers to make the headlines. I'd like to know what you thought was the news out of this speech, what you thought was the principal point made by the Chief Justice. And with the procedure of the Supreme Court in mind, we'll start with the junior man, Mr. Friesen. Well, I think the event itself is uh, perhaps the most newsworthy. The Chief Justice spoke out and uh, told not only the American Bar Association and lawyers of the country, but really all of the country, that there are problems in the federal courts which need attention. He asked for help. He asked for management expertise. And uh, he really was uh, saying, I think, that uh, he recognizes that there are things that need immediate work and attention. And I think uh, the lawyers will respond, and hopefully the American people. Mr. Clark? I would agree with Mr. Friesen. I think the, the main message that we got is that now the courts will communicate with the people. Now we will have a state of the judiciary message. <clears throat> I hope it'll be an annual fixture because it seems to me imperative that the people have the opportunity to know about and consider the problems of the judiciary. The Chief Justice had a note of urgency, and I think that's good. We have a failing system, and we've got to perfect it. Senator Irvin. I think he pointed out many of the deficiencies in our present system and made some very constructive things about how they can be uh, remedied. And uh, I think that one of the hopeful things in his speech was the fact that he said that uh, as Chief Justice in uh, calling attention of the country to the problems of the courts, that, uh, and the federal courts in particular, that he was not going to be either timid or apathetic. That's a very encouraging sign. Well, now he addressed this to the lawyers, but if something is really going to be done, it has to start with Congress, doesn't it? Well, I think it's going to have to start largely with, uh, with the bar. I think the bar is going to have to demand uh, some things. Uh, he didn't talk very long about what I think is the only solution, the biggest, the most important solution. There are many problems uh, due to the complexity of our age. But the ultimate solution was where he said that uh, it was necessary to try to devise a system in which you could try cases within 60 days after the arrest. We've had a large uh, argument in Congress about preventive detention. And I think that the, the, the real solution and the core of the solution is to uh, get enough, enough prosecuting attorneys and supporting personnel, enough uh, federal judges, and then uh, de uh, preventively detain the prosecuting attorneys in their offices long enough to prepare the cases for trial, and preventively detain the judges in the courthouse long enough to try those cases, and I think we'll go a long way towards solving our problems. Okay. Does that strike you as, is that what you would extract as the principal recommendation, immediate recommendation in his speech? Yes. Although he didn't emphasize, he emphasized a number of other things of a great importance. I, I think the uh, point he makes, uh, and I would agree wholeheartedly with the Senator, would increase the complexity of the situation even more. The more people you have in the system working, the more prosecutors uh, the more judges, 
the more supporting personnel, the more complex the situation is and the more management you need. And I would say that he was responding and saying, to get this 60-day uh, trial, we've got to manage a lot better and not just add more judges and more people. Now, where does that come from? Who does it? It comes from all sources. The, the judges have to manage better. Judges are managers. They, they are in charge of that trial and they're in charge of the calendar. But there are 14 supporting personnel for every judge. And someone has to start thinking about sound personnel policies, sound budgeting, and planning. One of his main points was lead time, which is a critical management concept. You, you can't have instant judges or instant courts or instant prosecutors for that matter. Well, perhaps I'm overly simplistic, but it seems to me when somebody, a Chief Justice of the United States, makes an appeal, somebody has to take the lead. Somebody has to do something. He was appealing to the Bar Association of the American people, but who will accomplish what he says? Will he, or will the Bar Association, will the Congress, will the Justice Department, who will do it? Well, I think we all have to do it. We have to start with the people. We've got to create uh, a passion for justice in this country, and it's got to come from all fronts. Justice Department has a major role. The judiciary itself has a major role. He said he, he asked every federal judge for his views before he made this state of the judiciary message. And I think that's imperative. I think you ought to get the views of, of the chief justices of the states and others, too, and institutionalize this. He has got to have the commitment of the judiciary. He's got to help uh, inspire the public to the realization that justice can only come from an effective mechanism. He's got to enlist uh, the support of the Congress and the... Uh, secure the resources that are necessary. I, I think if there, was, if there would be any criticism I would have, it was, the, un, it was the, the, really the entire pitch was to administration. And administration is only a means to an end. The end is justice, and uh, the methods of getting there are only a part of it. But are you saying that there is not now a passion for justice in this country and that the Chief Justice has to call for it? I think we're sadly lacking in that regard. I think our other concerns far outweigh our concern for justice. And uh, until we move to a realization that there'll be no respect for law when there's not justice, until we commit ourselves to justice as the end, it's going to be difficult. Well, now, Senator Irvin, you've lived your entire life in the law. Is that the way it goes, that we have to now start building a passion for justice? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, we sometimes get bogged down in uh, statistics and uh, paperwork in uh, the courts, and we talk about so many convictions, uh, not necessarily whether they were just convictions or whether they were unjust convictions. Uh, the human element in the court is the most important thing, and the human element comes largely from uh, competent judges and competent prosecuting attorneys and competent defense attorneys as well as law enforcement officers and uh, it seems to me that one thing emphasized it takes a certain amount of experience to make a competent judge he made many uh, important suggestions and one of them and i think uh, uh, that uh, was to try to avoid the irritation between the federal system of courts and the state system of courts and he made uh, emphasis on uh, the necessity for those states which do, do not have adequate post-conviction hearings proceedings to establish them so that there would be less interference by the federal courts with the uh, judgments in criminal cases of state courts. I think that was a very important suggestion. Can the states do that successfully? Oh, yes. We, ha we have a very uh, fine uh, uh, system of post-conviction hearings in North Carolina set up by act of the state legislature, and the result of it is, uh, instead of go taking so many of the cases 
from that where there have been convictions and judgments in the state courts in direct into the federal courts they go into these post-conviction hearings and uh, an adequate hearing is had and normally the federal courts do not interfere with our judgments I noticed the Chief Justice compared justice to the medical profession being several decades behind. I think that comes into your category, Mr. Friesen. Are we that far behind in establishing a system? Well, I think we're at least several decades behind. His reference to uh, Roscoe Pound's speech of 1906 is quite accurate. A person going into the courts today, and the majority of courts, would uh, feel as comfortable uh, today as in 1906. The changes have not taken place. But what's important is that modern management has changed. Uh, the corporations or businesses aren't run like they were in 1906. Uh, organizations have become so complex that we need a lot more. Well, that's what I want to explore with you, and we'll be back on that subject in just a moment. Congratulations. But uh, what are you going to do with it? Well, how? Yes, I know it works, but whom are you going to talk to? Okay, that's fine for the people next door, but how about the other people on the block? On the other streets in the neighborhood. How about the rest of the town? The other towns nearby. The rest of the state. The whole country. Western Electric can sympathize with you. We make phones too. We make them for the Bell Telephone Companies. We also make complex equipment that connects one phone to another so that when your Bell Telephone Company installs a Western Electric phone, you only need one pair of wires. Thanks for helping us make the point, Charlie, that Western Electric is in the Bell system to help people communicate. Oh, would you hold the phone out a bit? Now everyone can see. Here once again is George Herman. I noticed, Mr. Friesen, that the Chief Justice mentioned your operation, your institute, as a hopeful breakthrough. Is it going to lead to something really new, something uh, that will be a sort of quantum jump for the legal profession, for the judicial system? We, of course, hope so. The uh, uniqueness of the court environment, of the court system as a, an institution or organization makes it important that we look at the problems with new eyes that we find the best of modern management and not just take some leftover management concept. The court is complex because it gets its resources from so many different places that it really is not in control in the traditional, you know, hierarchical sense. It must uh, be persuasive where other places that people can make orders. And that particular aspect, uh, I think, makes it 
necessary for us to look and, uh, at new things and get new ideas. I noticed that in his analysis of all the problems of the judiciary, the word Supreme Court was never mentioned. Is the Supreme Court totally free of problems? Anybody? Well, they have uh, all the problems all appellate courts have, which is a tremendous uh, about, uh, uh, backlog of business to do and uh, a limited time to do it in, and uh, it's very difficult to, uh, as a general rule, for appellate courts to act too qu uh, very quickly. <clears throat> I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, in my state, where, uh, where we had a system where everyone had a right of, of appeal as a matter of right from any final judgment or any orders affecting a substantial right, uh, uh, right, that we were able to hear our appeals and uh, write opinions in the average case six weeks after the case was argued orally. And we need something to expedite appellate court work, and I'd say that's the great problem with the Supreme Court and the uh, federal hierarchy. I think his failure to <clears throat> mention the Supreme Court really underlines my earlier observation that he was talking more about administration, about mm -hmm. the mere mechanism, than about the substance of justice. Uh, because when you start talking about the mechanisms or the procedures of the Supreme Court, you're talking about nine men, and the problems there are not really very great. Its, its administration is quite good. Uh, to me, the thing the Supreme Court has done really wasn't encompassed in his message, and that is it's provided moral leadership. It has sensed the urgent issues of our time. When you see what it's done in its reapportionment cases, it's tried to cause democracy to... <clears throat> to be able to grapple with the problems of the 20th century by putting the vote where the people are. When it's addressed itself to America's race problem in Brown v. Board of Education and these other cases, it's, it's reached the, the major failures of, our, of the quality of justice in our lives. It's done this all through the civil liberties area. And this is, this is the area that I wish he would have spent more time, and I hope in the future we'll be able to. You notice he did drop one paragraph from his speech in which he referred to the unique American habit of looking to the courts for solutions of all kinds of social and political problems. That's right. <clears throat> and I think that observation is right, and it's an important one to keep in mind, and I suppose some of the cases that I've indicated uh, uh, are the best, uh, best evidence of it. To me, the major recommendation that he made was that we look at the system as a system. Today, it's a non-system. We have to look at police and prosecutors and courts and corrections together. And no matter how good the courts are, as he pointed out so well, if we don't move effectively in prisons and jails and corrections toward rehabilitation, the courts can't really reduce crime. I think that was one of the most significant uh, statements he made, was uh, saying we have to uh, consider the whole thing, that is, as far as the problem of crime is concerned, as a thing, uh, 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 the same thing from the time of the same system, or whatever you choose to call it, from the time of the arrest to the time a man comes back from prison. And uh, the rehabilitation of prisoners, I, I think, is one of the great problems of modern society. Yes, I agree, absolutely. I, I think there are two things, though, that ought to be said for Chief Justice Berger. Uh, first, it might have been restraint that kept him from talking about uh, possible substantive avenues of exploration, uh, new criminal procedures and that sort of thing. Sitting as he does on the Supreme Court, he wouldn't want to prejudice any of his own views in the future and his open mind on those problems. And the second, I think, he, he would have, he could have talked a long time, I know from personal experience, about his problems in administration of the Supreme Court. He sits uh, almost alone with uh, a secretary and an administrative assistant uh, handling 
more mail than the average senator or congressman gets in a particular day. He needs help on the court. But he wasn't asking for help for himself. He was really saying the system needs the help. I agree with the point about restraint, but for instance, he talked about the automobile, <clears throat> how it changed our lives and how it changed justice, points out that it is now the major source of litigation in America, but then doesn't move to such issues as no fault, which the judiciary must have some important recommendations on. They live with these cases. They know that, that insurance litigation and the automobile uh, collision situations uh, take an immense amount of their time and potential to help reduce crime and to effect uh, justice in America. You know that he has in other speeches at other places pointed out that in other countries automobiles accidents and such things are largely handled by justices of the, of the peace and never get involved in their court system. That's right. Uh, he's, he's very much aware of these, <clears throat> these problems and the question is why there was so little emphasis on them in the state of the judiciary message. Of course, uh, one of uh, uh, our problems arise out of the fact that we do have a Bill of Rights, and that's a great part of the Constitution. And in protecting the uh, rights of individuals against the government, we have evolved a number of rules which uh, were designed to make those uh, the provisions of the Bill of Rights effective. But at the same time, in so doing, we uh, have, uh, for example, uh, providing for re-hearings and uh, rid of habeas corpus extension. And one thing he said was significant to me, and that was that there should be something done to make a finality to some uh, court proceedings. And uh, uh, well, the twice he got applause. That's right, and uh, that's one of the problems is to find. Uh, we used to have uh, res judicata and uh, uh, stare decisis. The res judicata, particular, has been more or less set aside in the effort to be sure that people had the benefit of the Bill of Rights. And we haven't yet devised some fair way or some just way that uh, we give finality to uh, uh, criminal proceedings without uh, jeopardizing the rights of individuals. And uh, incidentally, he mentioned in the course of his uh, the manuscript the Judge John J. Parker. And the last conversation I had with John J. Parker, whom I knew very well, was in respect to this particular matter. What, what was left out of the speech? He, he couldn't have accomplished everything. Surely some of you gentlemen had some favorite item in the judicial well, process one, that was omitted. There's one thing I, that I struck with this omission was about the narcotic problem. Uh, I think we're going to have to do, to do anything uh, effective in this, in this field, and it's the most serious problem. We're going to have to find some way to deal with the narcotic problem as far as the addict is concerned as a med medical and a psychiatric problem rather than a legal problem. Get it of course, out of we're the going court. to have to leave those handle yes. the narcotics for game in the criminal field, but we're going to have to do something to take the addict out of the criminal courts. What did you find missing? Well, I, <clears throat> I would underscore the point that Senator Irvin has made there. The, the courts try to deal with problems that they can't possibly solve. Alcoholism. Mm -hmm. You know, a third to a fourth of the arrests every year in the 1960s involved alcoholism. And police and courts really can't cure alcoholism. They cannot cure addiction. But the judiciary can help us uh, create a commitment because of our concern for justice that we do something about those problems. In addition, I think we have to be aware. I don't like to think this or to say it because I'm a lawyer and a man of the law, but we have millions of people in America who really have no rights in the sense that a right's worth something, that it can be enforced when it's violated. And, and the judiciary has to address itself to that. It has to say to the American people, to the American Congress, and to the American president, let's enforce these people's rights. And you found that omitted in the speech? Yes. Mr. Friesen? Well, I'm inclined to think that in the very short period of time which he 
had that he covered an awful lot of the ills and problems that exist. I would have liked to have seen him emphasize the problem of the adversary process and not having sufficient numbers of, mm. of really competent lawyers. He mentioned it in passing and, and it was in there, but that's a critical problem in the courts today. In the very small amount of time we have left, let me ask you, when the Chief Justice talked about the reduction in the number of guilty pleas from, say, 95% to 60%, 55%, was he being regretful? Is this something which pains the courts, or was he just stating it as a neutral fact? I think it was a neutral in the sense that uh, he was trying to illustrate how a small change in attitude it can affect the workload of the court tremendously. You triple the number of trials by it's going from 90% to 70% was the point. And that, that it really hits you when you realize your court is not set up for that kind of changes. And it's a fact we have to live with. Very much so. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We'll have a final word in a moment. Once again is George Herman. The Chief Justice has made a first State of the Judiciary address. Much of what he said reflected the cry of frustration which he said he heard from almost every federal judge he contacted. Frustration at the unwieldiness of our current judicial machinery. Like others before him privately, he spoke publicly of the new burdens being heaped on our courts and he suggested a number of courses of action. One of them, a panel of six members, two from each branch of the government, to advise Congress on what the new laws would do to the courts and their caseloads. How the other two branches of government will react to the suggestion is still unclear. Now the long-rusted machinery of judicial change must begin to move again, and someone must move it. The Chief Justice has said that he will not stand silent and apathetic, but he can only propose. Congress must provide the money and the new structures he wants. He has started to push. It remains to be seen whether the machinery will begin to move. It remains to be seen also whether today's speech is unique or the first in a new and regular process of reporting to the nation on the state of the judiciary. This is George Herman for CBS News in Washington. Good evening.